Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the third and last of our series of events intended to coincide with the fifth anniversary of the EU referendum. I'm delighted tonight to, went, to welcome David Frost, Lord Frost, who is a Minister of State for the Cabinet Office, used to work in the Foreign Office, was our ambassador in Denmark, then went and headed up the Scotch Whiskey Association. I'm not going to ask him the question, why did you leave a job with Free Scotch to come back and work in government? So don't ask that one. For those of you who've come to our events before, you know the score. You've got on the Slido the ability to not only pose the questions you want to pose, but also to vote for the questions you want me to pose. Can I just say, when you're doing that, you might want to go through two separate steps in thought processes. Firstly, is this a question I'm liable to ask? Uh, and secondly, is it a question you'd like to hear the answer to? And I think if you can answer in the affirmative to both of those, then upvote it. But if not, then it just makes it, it makes it quite hard because what happens is very good questions that languish at the bottom of the list I never get round to seeing. So if you can help out in that way, that would be great. So David, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to do this. I wish we could have done it in person, but I hope we can invite you back at some point to do it in person. That would be really nice. I want to start off I think with, with a bit of the sort of history, uh, in a sense, just to talk about your experience with the negotiations of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And I suppose, first and foremost, was there a point in 2020 when you thought you wouldn't be able to secure a deal? Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Anne. And uh, first of all, great to be here. And um, I, I, I wish we could do it face to face uh, as well. But perhaps that moment will come um, fairly soon. Let's hope so. Um, um, was there any point where we thought a deal would be impossible? Yeah, quite a lot of points, actually, uh, if I'm honest. Um, I think obviously the, the, the pandemic itself hit us quite badly and, um, uh, you know, we all wondered whether it's going to be possible to do a negotiation by Zoom or whatever at all. And we subsequently discovered we could as we put things back together. I think... I mean, the other moments for me were, um, I suppose there was a moment in October where we it did sort of break down. And there was a moment, if you remember, when um, Michel Barnier was expecting to come to London and we, we said to him there wasn't much point because we seemed to reach the point of nothing to talk about. And that, that seemed to be quite a, a difficult moment, uh, but we picked it up again. Um, actually, I would say even as late as the last day, you know, it was not certain. Uh, even having done 99% of the work, whether we do the, the final 1%. But I think, you know, we did prove you can do it in, in these very challenging conditions, even though I would say I think you obviously you lose something in terms of um, informal contact and, you know, the ability to talk things through in a kind of normal way with the other uh, negotiating team. And I think some of the you know, what, what looks a bit like sort of friction and some of the jarring can probably be put down to that during the year, just the inability to kind of defuse things and move on is that's that's much harder over Zoom. Now, I mean, there are people who say that one of the reasons why you succeeded where Theresa May failed in the sense of getting a deal that would actually secure the agreement of the British Parliament is that you were tougher. Uh, I mean, looking back on on the on the sort of previous regime, do you think they weren't tough enough? Do you think that was the secret, or was it simply that you had a different set of asks, which uh, the EU was more able to sort of give? Yeah, I think. I mean, there's a lot in there. Uh, yeah. To be honest, I think. What do I think? I think we. Um, I mean, we had the advantage in last year in 2020 that obviously the government just won a big majority on a very clear set of propositions about how the um, the Brexit process ought to be done and concluded and very clear set of a sort of vision about what the, the, the future relationship should be like. And in a sense, it was very possible to be tough on that basis. Um, we were always clear that um you know if we couldn't reach an agreement that was that was life and we would try very hard but it might not be possible and i think the the, the credible walk away option was was really important in 2020 and that was a, obviously an advantage we had that um predecessors didn't have i think i mean even the three months in 2019 um where we concluded the withdrawal agreement i think was 
was different. You know, we were still mm. within the EU at the time. The domestic politics was was difficult. We had the Ben Burt Act and all of that. We didn't even then have a sort of credible walkaway option. But I think we were clear. You know, it was more difficult to be tough, but we were at least clear what we wanted. Uh, I think in the second half of 2019, and tried to get there. I think my, you know our predecessors had a lot of disadvantages. I think um, you know there was there was obviously you know, no agreement domestically uh, on what sort of Brexit ought to be pursued, and that became increasingly obvious. That, that obviously makes life life difficult. Um, I do. I, I'm. You know, I wonder how tough they they sort of really wanted to be at times. I suppose I, I I kind of question that, but I think the the biggest problem they had was they, in my view, a sort of set of intellectual errors probably around the uh, the Ireland uh, Northern Ireland issue and the nature of the border that seems to have led to the conclusion that alignment was the only way of solving these problems and hence took you in a direction that ended up with being part of the customs union, the single market and the backstop and all of that. And it, 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 I think that was the core of their problem, not so much just sort of banging the table, but the, the intellectual underpinnings took a diversion at one point mm. and led them to a, a proposition that couldn't be sustained politically as, as became obvious. Yeah, I mean, we'll come back to the protocol, I suspect. But yeah. just in terms of the negotiation, I mean, you've, you've worked with the European Union. You were in OCREP, I think, if I remember rightly, for yeah. a while. Uh, you said in, fr in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, the other day that you'd expected the EU to prove to be more flexible in some areas than they ultimately proved to be. Were you, overall, were you surprised by the way the European Union acted and approached the, acted in and approached the negotiations? Uh, did you think they'd do it in a slightly different way than how they ultimately did? Um, I was a bit, I mean, not surprised is the wrong word. I think the there was, I got the impression, and you know, the EU may tell you this is wrong, but we it certainly seemed to us that they hadn't sort of swept away the cobwebs of you know the process that led to um uh, the departure of the previous prime minister and the policy that had sort of underpinned that and there was still quite a lot of relics of, of that around and there was a, an assumption that we were the the sort of weaker party and would have to accept certain things if we wanted an agreement and it felt like there was an assumption that you know we would wish to be closely aligned and would make certain sort of sacrifices if you like to to achieve that and i think it, it took time for them to to kind of realize that that wasn't the case um and we we still at times the negotiations have propositions of policies attributed to us that, that weren't actually our policies but were the policies of the the previous uh team so i think you know that was around that's what surprised me i mean you're very tough obviously they take positions and stick to them that's that's sort of uh red um but i i, I it seemed to take them longer to sort of move on uh, i guess uh, and deal with us on the basis of what we were saying and doing and the propositions we were advancing than I thought. And I, I felt we sort of lost a bit of time for that reason. I mean, actually, on that, one of the things that struck me when you made your speech in Brussels in February 2020, I think it was, was I remember sort of heated debates about whether you meant it or not. Yeah. On the pages of the newspapers. And stuff. Did you find that? Did you find that sort of during the negotiations, you would say, this is our position and the, the retort will be, well, you can't mean that, what you say about alignment. Did you, did you find that people took that with a pinch of salt and didn't take it as a statement of principle? I think so. I mean, to, I, don't, I don't think I ever had anyone say to us, you know, we don't believe you sort of thing. Right. It was never quite as stark as that. Um, but I do think that there, there was a, there was sort of a lot of unspoken assumptions, which which obviously the speech was designed to dispel to, to some extent, or at least try to to dispel um, a lot of assumptions, and I think a lot of you know perhaps an assumption that a political debate was still going on in the UK in the way that it, it just wasn't, and that that certain questions were settled, and that there was political pressure on us, which which sort of didn't exist any longer and yeah. um so i think there was there was just some of that sort of intellectual hangover and that did get spelt uh I just you know possibly the the pandemic getting in the way is part of the reason why it took some time but but it did take a bit of time
Was there any sense at all in which you felt uncomfortable giving that speech? I mean, it was a slightly, it was a slightly odd situation, weren't you? Because you were a special advisor at the time and mm -hmm. you went to Brussels and gave a substantive policy speech. I mean, was, what was the thinking behind that? And did, did it make you feel slightly uneasy to be put in that position? No, I, I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, I think um, it is an unusual thing for special advisors to do, but um, equally, um, you know, I was the chief negotiator. People sort of knew who I was. Um, and, um, you know, Michel Barnier was uh, travelling Europe and giving speeches from time to time uh, about how the EU saw things. And we just felt that, you know, we shouldn't try and be sort of parallel to that but we should set out take the and we should set out our case in a in a kind of intellectual way that, that people should engage with and you know for for various reasons people felt I was the best person to to do that and it obviously is to some extent a personal speech kind of about me as well as the the vision uh for Brexit and some of the the justifications for Brexit that I think I I thought people just hadn't heard in those terms or had just sort of dismissed. And, um, you know, it was expressed in quite stark terms, obviously, and people kind of picked it up. But, but I, you know, I'd like to think it affected sort of judgments about us uh, a bit. And I, I, I reread it before coming here today. And I think a lot of it still stands up, to be honest, as a proposition about where the country's going. And I'd assume that the Prime Minister had known what you were going to say, though, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, yeah. okay, just want to check no, all, that, that all minor detail. Are um, um, although I've got to say, I, I find on these questions, um, uh, he and I think in, in very similar ways. So it wasn't a laborious process uh, agreeing that speech. Okay, now getting, I mean, just if we can just spend a bit of time on the sort of substance of that speech. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would say is that you, you, you were almost one of the first, I think, in government to admit that there might be trade-offs involved in this. You said that we're not frightened by suggestions there's going to be friction, there are going to be greater barriers, we factored that in. Mm. So, I mean, was that an important part of the process for you to, to, be, to sort of, did you see that as sort of accepting trade-offs inherent in the Brexit process, that they might be rocky even if only to start with? I think it's... Would it have been easier if your predecessors had been as forthcoming about the trade-offs, I suppose, is the follow-up. <laughs> I mean, I think they they were, um, I mean, maybe not as forthcoming, but, it, they, it, you know, a set of trade-offs clearly underpinned the government's position in 2016 to 2019. I think it was just, you know, there were different assumptions about them and they came to a different position about what what made sense for the country and it wasn't one that we, we agreed with. But, um, you know, that sort of judgment was was obviously being made. I think I think it's really important just to be honest about these things. You know, you can't construct um, an intellectual case on um, you know propositions that that don't quite stack up. And um, you know, it is obvious, as I said, that there's a you know I would say a pretty low, uh, but there is a cost to leaving the the customs union, and it is um, outweighed by the the ability to control your own terms of trade and your own legislation and I, I mm -hmm. believe that to be true um, if you look at successful states around the world they aren't um, you know they're not all parts of multinational uh, sort of semi-political unions they they achieve things on their own and um, I you know I, I believe that as a proposition that you know a nation state organizing its own rules in the way that suits it best um you know underpinned by genuine democracy is is the best form of successful social organization we found and i think we're going to show that i'm going to stick to the sort of economic side of it rather than the political stroke democratic mm. side and, and so there's two things there there is being in charge of your own trade and there's the regulatory mm. aspects so if we can deal with those in turn uh Obviously, we have government forecasts that stress that trade deals with the rest of the world simply would not replace lost trade with the European Union. And, and I'm sorry to do this to you. I just read a, a piece you wrote for Portland in 2016 where, where you seem to suggest very much the same thing. I mean, do you think that's true? Do you, I mean, we might be able to trade differently. Uh, we might have more freedom to create trade deals that suit us rather than having to negotiate them as part of 
uh, the European Union, but surely there is no way that whatever we do in terms of trade deals, it's going to compensate for the lost trade with our nearest and largest trading partner, is it? Well, I, I, I think I wouldn't sort of look at it like that, I suppose, is, is my answer. Um, you know, we don't know yet what the effect on trade of leaving the, the customs union and the single market is going to be. I mean, obviously, there's a lot happening at the moment, and it's difficult to make sense of the figures, but but I'm, I'm much more optimistic than many people. Um, growth, I mean, trade depends on growth as well as proximity and trade arrangements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, other parts of the world are growing much faster than the European Union, and there has been a persistent... Um, uh, sort of rebalancing of our trade in the last 15, 20 years away from the European Union towards the rest of the world for that reason. I'm sure that's that's going to continue um, in the, the new environment. So I think if you're talking in, in a sort of simple way, you know, crude way about kind of replacing, I think, you know, it probably will over, over time. Um, I also think, I mean, obviously you can't look just at trade flows in in isolation uh they're already part of what's going on in, mm -hmm. in national funds flows and international economy you're looking at investment you're looking at um other kinds of um uh financial flows and you know simply looking at shares in trade doesn't doesn't kind of capture it you know what we need to do and what we will do is make the country you know even more a magnet for investment uh than it is already and that will show up in different ways in the the trade figures but the important thing is being a magnet for investment and domestic growth and and finally i would say um you know what matters is domestic productivity leading into growth and uh, you know trade is is obviously a factor in generating productivity it isn't mm -hmm. the only part of it and um your control over your own rules and legislation ways of doing things is a powerful way of improving your own productivity if you wish to use it that way and uh that's that's what i hope we will we will do well i'm going to come on to the regulation just one more thing on trade this thing i just genuinely don't understand about this argument is how i mean history suggests that geography is a primary determinant of trade patterns and yes, Asia is growing faster than Europe, but Asia is an awful long way away. And our, the trade we do with China amounts to a fraction of the trade we do with the European Union. Why should a cynic believe that we're going to buck the trends that history makes so apparent and suddenly start trading a lot more with countries a long way away than we do with countries on our doorstep? I mean, I suppose it depends, you know, how big a sweep of history is, because, you know, you go back 50 years and obviously the trade patterns were 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 very different. Um, and a lot of what we see now is is the function of being part of a, uh, a customs union and the trade diversion that's, that's arguably gone with that. So um, these things change all the time. You know, our trade with the EU has not disappeared. Uh, it's still a substantial chunk, a chunk of our trade and you know we're talking about sort of marginal changes annually that tend to go in one direction rather than another so yeah geography counts but but growth counts um, trade in services obviously is is sort of relatively indifferent to geography and there are lots of other things going on so I just I just sort of resist the simple analysis that this is all about uh, trade figures I think there's, you know, there's just much more to it, and you have to look at it in that broader way. Okay, we'll move off trade and just talk. You talk a lot, and sort of you hinted it quite strongly in that Brussels speech again that actually being able to set your own rules is absolutely fundamental, both in terms of democratic principles, but also in terms of being able to address those issues of things like productivity that you spoke about. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose one obvious question is there's been little sign of a plan. And, and yes, I know there's been a pandemic, but kind of shouldn't shouldn't we have the right to think that the government has a very clear idea of what those regulatory opportunities are? And why haven't we seen more of a hint about them, I suppose? So, I, I mean, I think it's it's more than just regulation, I would say. It's, 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 um, it's wider tools. Um, I think you are being a bit unfair to us you know even if we haven't dressed it up in a kind of um five-year plan style that everyone can come and uh, come and look at um you know we have done quite a lot uh we have uh you know set out um changes to our agriculture for example which was one of the big 
problems of, of being in the EU. We have the trouble of our own immigration, which has quite significant economic effects, uh, obviously, in, in different directions. Um, in the current session, we're changing state aid rules we've inherited, so they're more flexible, more easily used. We're changing our procurement rules so that, um, again, they're more flexible. We're not sort of bound in by the, the process we've inherited from the EU. We've developed the free ports programme with the, the, the sort of underpinnings in different ways that will go with that. So I, I feel like, I mean, I think... You know, there, there is stuff happening and, and quite a lot already that is making the country, you know, begin to feel quite different. And, I, you know, I think one of my jobs with my sort of non-negotiations Brexit opportunities hat on is to make sure that, you know, we've, we uh, have sufficient energy behind you know, what comes beyond that into the third and fourth session of Parliament and keep a drive for reform going. OK, but I mean, just... What one follow up on that, which is, I mean, of all those things you you cited, is there any that's really going to be a game changer in terms of boosting our productivity? I can see why, you know, I can see why the Northeast might welcome having a free port, though I'm not convinced about the aggregate impacts of it. But what what is the stuff that's going to fundamentally change the story of, you know, relatively lagging British productivity compared to that of our neighbours and competitors? So I mean, that's going to occur over time. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, that, that's obviously a bigger problem than, I mean, some of that is, um, uh, has has been in our own hands. So some of it has, has been set by BE rules. I mean, we know we've got a problem with, with skills we have had for, you know, best part of 100 years in the UK. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, we are putting in place stuff to, to try and deal with that. But these things do have very slow payoffs, obviously, um, but it doesn't make them, they're still the right thing to do. Um, I think um, one of the problems of EU membership, um, and it's almost kind of psychological problem, was that we, we kind of, um, there was sort of failure of will a bit, that we got used to um, um, having rules set by others. We got used to kind of thinking to solutions to our problems were not to be found within the borders of the country, but, but had to be done in some other way. And I think somehow we lost our energy a bit. And mm -hmm. in areas that weren't, you know, large areas that were not EU competence and where we could in theory have done things, actually, I think we lost some of that energy and drive to find solutions. And I think that is some of what we'll get back uh, after Brexit, you know, even in areas that have always been in our control. And that's why I, I do think this point about sort of democracy and control is 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 actually really important. It isn't just about, you know, the sort of pure analysis of the, the economy. It, you know, it's political economy, animal spirits, all those sort of things make for successful economies. Okay, just one thing quickly, because I forgot to ask and I should have asked you, do you agree with a lot of the commentators who now are saying that uh, an equivalence agreement on financial services is unlikely? Um, so it's not my absolute sort of specialist area, obviously, financial services, but I think um, the the thing about financial service equivalence is, is obviously it's not one thing, it's, it's yeah. a set of potential equivalences and, you know, some of those are in place because they're systemically important to, to, to both parties mm -hmm. and, you know, we've granted a particular sort of pattern of equivalence and we're still waiting for the EU on, on some things. I think it is, you know, we're, we're waiting to see what they they do. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's realistic to assume that probably we're not going to get equivalence in every area, given what the, the atmospherics coming out of Brussels. And But I think that, you know, the, the, the city feels pretty confident about that. And, you know, uh, again, um, in general, um, believes that, you know, control of our own financial services rules and the dynamism and ability to experiment that comes with that is, is going to be more important if it comes to it. I mean, do, do the atmospherics with the European Union trouble you at all? I mean, I don't, it's not a, a state secret to say that actually relations between the UK and the EU have been better in the past and are quite tense in many ways now. But isn't that something that concerns you? in terms of, I mean, we'll come on to the protocol, obviously, yeah. so not in terms of that, but just in terms of our ability to work with our neighbours. Do you think, actually, that that might end up being problematic? I mean, we, 
Um, I mean, I, I said last week in another speech that, um, you know, I, I, I don't think those who, you know, campaign five years ago for Brexit drove the analysis, uh, drove the, the politics of it. Um, I think you, they would have been surprised. I think they are surprised quite often to, to find relations are, you know, in the state they're in. We, you know, I don't, we genuinely didn't think this. Um, we genuinely didn't want this. You know, the, the vision is of a sort of free trading sovereign Britain that's just friendly with its, its neighbours. And it, it seems to have been more difficult to, to get there than we thought. And, you know, the history and the process of the last few years probably weighs a bit on that. But, you know, it's not where we want to be. Um, you know, we absolutely do want uh, sort of friendly relations and... Um, you know, to sort of mutual profit. Um, I, I guess one sort of difference perhaps is that, you know, we see competition and doing things differently as a good thing uh, and a good thing for the whole of Europe, not just for us, because mm. the ability to sort of experiment and learn from others' experiences is quite important. Uh, but I'm not sure everybody in the EU, I mean, so some certainly do, but not everybody sees it like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the, you know, the reason why there's a there's a bit of friction. Um, obviously, we'll come on to it, Northern Ireland, you know, until we settled the Northern Ireland issue and put it put in place a new balance, as we say, or the right balance, um, I think it's going to be difficult to to get relations onto the right footing that we want. But we we absolutely do want that. And it's, you know, it's absolutely not part of the, the plan to be um, bickering with the EU. And I hope it isn't part of their long-term plan either. I mean, we will come on to sausages in a minute, but just sort of more generally on the protocol to start with, I suppose two questions. The first is, I mean, to play devil's advocate, is it surprising that the relations are tense when we threaten to tear up an agreement we'd signed only a year before in the, via the internal market bill? Uh, is, it, is it a surprise then that they say they've lost trust in us? So, I mean, I mean, I don't want to rerun the arguments about UKIM, um, which were, were all sort of talked through at the time, though I, I do think um, you know, some of the things the EU has said and done since the beginning of this year have, have sort of vindicated some of the concerns we, we had at the time, but that is to water under the bridge now. Um, I think the, um, the concern we have about where things stand now is obviously that... Um, uh, the EU, through its own sort of intervention in Northern Ireland, has has created a political situation that is new and difficult to manage and, and causing problems. And I do think that they're a little bit too swift to resort to threats of various kinds for problems in a way that, that we're not, I don't think. And uh, that is also problematic. So I definitely don't agree with this analysis that the trust problem is all one-sided. I mean, obviously you wouldn't explain me to, but I genuinely don't think no, is it, it is. By the same token, isn't isn't talking about the possibility of using Article 16 a threat? So Article 16 is a, a, a perfectly legitimate part of the, the protocol. Um, it's, you know, where the, the, um, the reasons for its use are, are set out clearly. And, um, you know, as far as I'm aware, the EU haven't taken off the table their threat to use Article 16 if they needed to either in Northern Ireland. It's still there. They haven't renounced it, even if it's not being used at the moment. And they're right not to renounce it because it's, it's part of the protocol and we wouldn't expect that. So Article 16 is there for a reason. It's in case we see, you know, so societal, um, economic difficulties, trade diversion and so on. And I think we, we arguably are seeing some of those things. Are you concerned, before we get onto the sort of, I was going to say the meat, which is a bad way of putting it, onto the substance. Uh, are you concerned about potential damage to the UK's international reputation because of our apparent willingness to uh, go back on agreements we've signed to potentially break international law, albeit in limited circumstances? Uh, does, does it worry you that that ruins our, or spoils or undermines our reputation, particularly at a time actually when one of the, one of the key planks of global Britain seems to be to portray us as a country that is a defender of the liberal rules-based international order. 
Mm. Well, I mean, it, it would worry me if I thought it was the case, but I don't, I don't think it is the case. I don't think that um, uh, people see us uh, in that way at all. I didn't see it come out of the, the G7 summit. I didn't see it come out of the, the discussions around it. You know, we are a, um, a huge contributor to sort of global security, global public goods uh, in all kinds of ways. And I think, you know, there's, there's a tendency to be mesmerized by the the minutiae of um, actions on Northern Ireland. But I mean, I just I just reject the proposition that um, extending a grace period for, for sort of the paperwork that goes with parcels makes you a, a, a sort of international problem state. I just think that is a, a kind of totally disproportionate reaction to what's what's going on here. But, but I mean, a government minister did stand up in front of Parliament and say that a bill would break international law in a specific and limited way, didn't he? He did, he did stand up and do that. And um, uh, that was very much debated at the time. And of course, you know, those clauses for, for wider reasons haven't become uh, law in the UK. And, you know, I, we had hoped to, to sort of move on from all of that. Um, but, but obviously, you know, what the EU did on the vaccines, um, and Article 16 in January has has produced a new situation in Northern Ireland that we are, you know, trying to to deal with in as responsible and constructive a way as as possible. Um, uh, which you know we would like to have a pragmatic and constructive partner on. Okay, well, we reached half time, David. Just to reassure you, we're we were half an hour in. Uh, we don't have an advert break, though. I'm afraid. But <laughs> Turning, turning to the protocol itself, mm. uh, I mean, you've said that the problem isn't the protocol itself, but it's the way the EU is implementing it. Is the is logical interpretation of that that they aren't operating within the rules somehow? I mean, if they are operating within the rules, then surely the problem is the protocol. So I, I guess I'll say a few things about that. So I think, first of all, um, you know, the protocol is is um, a purposive agreement. Uh, you know, it is designed to deal with a specific problem, which is um, is quite unusual, a, de a delicate political situation, uh, which which I won't go into. Um, uh, it's designed to support the Good Friday Agreement. It's designed to sort of keep everyday lives as unchanged as as possible in Northern Ireland. And I think if the you know if the implementation of the the protocol, however correct one side may feel it is is actually undermining those purposes then it's it's undermining the 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 protocol you know it may not be illegal but it's it's kind of um you know it's it's, it's not supporting what we're trying to do here so i think that's that's one problem i think the second is that the, you know the protocol is not a a clear black and white document uh, in every area. Um, the way it was agreed left quite a lot to be sorted out subsequently and there's quite a lot of margin of appreciation and you know provisions that have to be read together. I mean for example in Article 5 um, it says at one point the, the, the provisions of the Union's custom code shall apply and then in Article 6 it says we shall all do our best to minimise um, checks and controls in the ports of Northern Ireland and you have to read those two things together you can't just look at the first you've got to read mm -hmm. uh, both of them so there's a margin of appreciation here there's a kind of purpose to it that if you're undermining the logic of it then you're not working within the spirit of the protocol and I think that is the, the difficulty we've got something can be sort of legal but um, not consistent with what we're trying to do and that's that I suppose is what we're trying to get across I mean one of the other things you've you've you've, you've suggested uh, I think it might have been in the, in the Financial Times that caused a bit of a stir was that one of the reasons why there's an unhappiness with the protocol is because the British government underestimated what sort of impact it would have on the movement of goods to Northern Ireland isn't that something we should have anticipated so I, I... I don't see what's wrong with um, learning from experience, I suppose is my, my first point. Um, you know, this is a very unusual agreement and um, we've, we've learned a lot about 
how economic actors behave and the incentives in the last few months. And it, I mean, it would be surprising if we could have predicted those things. And I don't, I don't see what's wrong, particularly with, with learning from experience on that. I think the, the FT um, article, um, uh, I think sort of slightly is more black and white than I would have wanted to get across uh, for reasons best known to themselves. The the uh, FT wouldn't use the phrase I originally used, which is sort of chilling effect rather than an effect. Uh, we underestimated the chilling effects of movements from GB on movements from GB to Northern Ireland. We knew there would be an effect. Mm. What surprised us is how strong the disincentive was and how quickly it uh, came to be applied. And I think the politics of the situation generated in Northern Ireland since January is, is kind of part of that effect. So I suppose the last thing I would say is, you know, obviously we foresaw some of these problems. Obviously we foresaw that this is a, you know, a very unusual piece of uh, treaty making. And that's why we built in the consent arrangements. You know, we, we could see that, you know, some of this was only going to be sustainable with the explicit consent of Northern Ireland's uh, political representatives. Um, and that ended up being a vote in, in four years' time. Um, but this sense that we've done something unusual here to deal with a special circumstance, but it had to be underpinned by uh, a consent arrangement is, is very important to the whole thing. And actually the whole protocol you know, can only really operate well if both communities in Northern Ireland have sort of bought into it. And clearly at the moment, they, they haven't both done so. Was there a point at which you considered going to the European Union and rather than saying, look, you're being, you're being ridiculous, you're being legalistic, you need to be more flexible to make this work, actually saying, look, we fundamentally underestimated the impact that this would have on trade from GB. Is there any way we can sit down and try and resolve this? Because it seems to me, you know, that, that might have led to a better tone in the negotiations, if nothing else. So, I, I mean, I think we have tried to uh, to do that, to be honest. Uh, you know, we put in a dozen or so papers to the EU on various aspects of um uh, the problem, including some some sort of quite fundamental ones, uh, an SPS equivalence arrangement, for example, a trusted trader scheme, arrangements to make the UK traders traders service work better, um, and you know on, uh, solutions on medicines and so on. So we are trying to find solutions here. Um, it's not always visible in the public gaze, um, and you know we haven't had a huge amount back from the from the eu but we are trying to get into problem solving and i guess our frustration is that um we don't seem to be able to get a discussion going on that and meanwhile um obviously politics in northern ireland is taking its own its own course and uh, that is part of the the situation we have to deal with i mean would it really represent a dramatic infringement of british sovereignty for us to sign up to alignment on veterinary rules with the european union so I, I guess it depends what you um, your definition of dramatic. Um, you know, having um, control of your own SPS and agri-food rules is pretty important in in free trade uh, agreements nowadays. They're obviously a pretty central part of it, um, and uh, it's difficult to see why third countries would reach agreements with us if we. Um, uh, if you know, if our rules could change randomly at the, the behest of a, a third party, um, so I don't think it's quite as as minor as people say. Sometimes, you know, we we aspire to you know have top class um, SPS and agri food rules, and that you know that may it may not it may take us in a different direction to the EU uh, over time, um, but it comes back to the point I made about. You know, having control of your own rules being important. It, it is important and it's connected to, to other things we're trying to do. You know, what the proposition we're trying to advance is that, you know, both sides have extremely high standards and, and therefore it doesn't make sense to treat movements from GB to Northern Ireland as if, you know, that was crossing any other external border of the, the EU. It just isn't like that. But on this trade point specifically, uh, if, as I think is the case, the EU were willing to make this a short-term deal that we could revisit in the event that we needed to change our standards to accommodate a negotiation with a third party, 
that's problem solved short term, isn't it, at the very least? So, I mean, we already have, um, in principle, a trade agreement with a, uh, a third party, i.e. Australia. We hope to get some more during the year. We, um, uh, you know, we're, we're very ambitious about CPTPP membership. Uh, so I think the short term might turn out to be quite short term. That's that's the problem. Mm. Um, there's also a kind of political economy problem, which that is that, you know, once you've decided to align, all the pressures are to remain aligned and not not cause difficulties by unaligning. And, um, you know, I think that would be a worry for us to take into trade to trade agreements. Uh, we, you know, we have to have control uh, so that we can be a genuinely kind of equal in when we do these negotiations. I mean, in a sense, though, I mean, you know, you've you've described the EU as being extremely legally purist, but you can see why their retort is that we're extremely politically purist, uh, is that there's, there's sort of two purisms standing off against each other. There's a sovereignty one and there's a legal one. I mean, I, I think all we're asking for is what every other country in the world has, which is, is you know, unless you're, you're a member of the European Union, which is, is control of your your own laws and your own ways of, of doing things. And, you know, we've done something pretty exceptional in Northern Ireland. It's, you know, it's a massive compromise which we're willing to make in the interests of the 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 peace process and the Good Friday agreements and rightly so, um, but it's a bit hard for that then to be exploited to suggest the only way forward is for us to accept a set of rules which we ourselves have no say in. I mean, I just I just think that is not there's not a feasible political direction to go for an independent country, and we we have to find some other way of managing this. Okay, I mean, just one more question on this bit. I want to talk a little bit about the future and a little bit about uh, other issues as well. Mm. What do you take the phrase sovereign equals to mean? Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by the way people comment on this so much. Um, and, um, uh, you know, when we first started using it, I just um, regarded it as sort of statement of fact that, you know, every independent state is, is sort of sovereign. Um, and... Um, uh, that is a sort of fairly fundamental thing about international law, and the you know the EU doesn't use the word sovereign in quite the same way. It tends to talk about autonomy, but I think mm -hmm. it means the same sort of things that we mean by sovereignty, i.e., deciding your own decisions um, uh, in your own interest uh, yeah, without um, a legal without a legal requirement to, uh, imposed on you you know, by some third party. I mean, in that sense, we are sovereign equals. So, you know, obviously we're not equal in other ways. The the EU economy is a lot bigger than ours. That's that's mm. just a statement of, of fact. But but um it doesn't mean that as so as international actors, we are both equal. And you know, for, for some of the reasons I was talking about earlier, we 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 just felt it was important to kind of situate that uh, and make sure it's sort of understood and I, I do find it intriguing that so many people seem to think it jars in international relations I'm not sure it does jar outside Europe very much to be honest uh, to talk about sovereign countries I think it's a Europe thing and yeah, it I mean, the psychology of these things I'm no lawyer but I mean the pedant inside me wonders whether you shouldn't have just said it equally sovereign I mean, we we it might have been okay. We 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 just you know we came up with a, a form of words and, and stuck to it because it expressed something that we felt was was important. And um, I think when it's as I said, you know, when when the concept's been picked up between us and the EU, and I think it has been a couple of places, you know, talk about autonomy rather than sovereign, but we mean the same things by that. And uh, I honestly, I don't think it's it's sort of particularly controversial. I'm. I'm I'm genuinely intrigued as to why a lot of people think it is controversial or jars in some way with international norms, because I just don't see it. Just a little bit on, on the workings of, of government. Uh, I suppose the first thing is, you know, you will now see, you have now have a bird's eye view of the workings of government from where you're sitting now. Uh, has there been anything about it that has surprised you relative to what you might have expected when you were, say, sitting in the Foreign Office in your sort of previous mm. career? I think um, 
I mean, I've only been a minister for three or four months, but I, I can already see, this is a sort of personal reflection, and I can see that, um, you know, being a minister is um, is different to being an official or even a special advisor. And I think, um, you know, you are you're not part of the bureaucratic system in quite the same way. You know, you're, you're sort of screened from things in, in certain ways and certain processes go on without you. And it's very important to give clear direction so that all those processes can kind of operate knowing what you want to do. And I think that is something that um, I kind of knew intellectually, but it's very obvious when, you, when you're sort of sitting here doing it. I think, you know, um, you know, having been an insider in government for 30 years, I'm not sure there's, there's you know, how, how government works and the processes, um, you know, depends on, you know, it does depend on clarity of aim, um, objectives and ability to bring people along with you. And I think that's, that's sort of true wherever you're sitting, really. Did you have any momentary doubts when the Prime Minister asked you to take centre stage in the Brexit negotiations? Um, yeah, I think I, you know, I would have been um, kind of foolish if I hadn't interrogated myself on the on the question. Um, I, you know, I thought I'd left government. I'd left government once and come back with um, the now prime minister into the foreign office, and then left again. And when I uh, came back that time in 2019, there was only one job I wanted to do, and uh, you know, PM was uh, kind enough to offer it me, which was sort of chief negotiator. And um, um, a lot of friends and colleagues said you should do it, so that kind of reinforced me in it, and I, I did it. Um, uh, but I think, um, you know, as I was saying, you know, moving on from that to to be a minister is a is a different kind of thing. Uh, but again, um, you know, I kind of persuaded that that people thought I was the right person, and you know, I feel we we've achieved a lot in this field, in the Brexit field, in the last eighteen months. Agree with it or disagree with it, we've definitely achieved a lot of things that a lot of people said couldn't be achieved. Uh, so that that's why I'm, I'm sort of encouraged we can take this forward. There was a delicious moment then where I thought you were going to say there was only one job I wanted to do, and PM was it. Uh, <laughs> now, I mean, you're a former civil servant and you know that there are those around this government who think that there is a pro-Remain bias amongst the civil service and this affects their ability to do their job. Do you agree on either of those counts? Um, I think sort of yes and no, um, I guess, is the honest answer. I think I mean, the first point I would say is that um, this is all receding you know, now sort of rapidly in the, the rear mirror, you know, whether people supported remain or leave and attitudes to it, that, you know, that does feel like a, a debate that's, that's happened. I, I think it's reasonable to say, although obviously I don't know everyone's personal views. I mean, the civil service is drawn from, you know, particular groups in society and they, those groups, the polling evidence suggests tended to vote remain rather than leave. And so it's not in a way that's not that surprising that you see that as part of the um, the, the sort of the currents. Um, I found very few cases where people let that interfere in what they were doing day to day. Uh, I wouldn't say it never happened, but I think, you know, sort of professionally, the organisation has stood up really pretty well uh, to the to the pressures. And certainly I have no complaints since since I came came back in. Um, I think I would say three things, perhaps. Uh, one, um, I do think civil service has gradually um, uh, sort of gained enthusiasm for the possibilities of an independent Britain. It comes back a bit to the point I was making earlier. Not everybody, obviously, necessarily, but um, that sort of taking back control means something. And the civil service as a bureaucracy can get things done. And I think, you know, the possibilities of that are beginning to, to kind of intrigue people. I think if I would say the, the civil service has a bias, it's, it's a sort of bias to being kind of nice to people. And maybe that's a very kind of English thing. You know, the, the sometimes I feel we could just be, and we've tried to be just a bit clearer, just a bit firmer, just a bit sort of more unambiguous, even at the price of upsetting the people we're talking to, because it helps to be clear 
and uh, people know where you're coming from. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, people want to find solutions, but sometimes, you know, being clear about the problem is the first step to, to finding a solution. So if there's a bias, I would say there's some of that. And maybe the last thing, I've, I've said this to a few others, I think um, I've noticed, and I, I won't name colleagues in this, uh, but the, the colleagues who have begun the process of negotiations with me at some point with a you know that with a relatively sort of positive view about the EU and how it works have been sort of radicalized in the process of doing the negotiations and you know we've been clear at times that some of the things that have been said and done in the negotiations have sort of surprised us and I think that's it surprised some of the team as well so I, I do think all that's a sort of slightly long-winded way of saying I think there has been a learning process um, I personally have got no complaints but I, I do think that you know some of the the sort of natural um, deformation professionnelle, if you like, uh, have changed and are continuing to change as the situation of the country changes. That's probably the fairest assessment I could give. And what what is the relationship in your mind between Brexit and global Britain? And I suppose more specifically, what is global Britain and to what extent does it has it depended on Brexit first? Because we had an independent foreign policy as a member state, didn't we? Um, yeah, yes, to a large extent. Uh, I do think it was a bit captured by the point I made earlier that, um, you know, we got used to not devising solutions for ourselves and not used to sort of thinking hard about the world and what was in our interests, but, but sort of getting lost in a kind of slightly mushy multilateralism where we spent all our time sort of consulting and worrying about kind of process and the system. Mm. Uh, rather than um, thinking about um, outcomes. And I think what we tried to do and the, um, the integrated review that um, uh, we produced earlier this year and obviously that, that um, brilliant John Bew had a, had a very strong hand in, though, though many others did too, you know, was an attempt to bring some kind of clarity of thought. So if I would say it's global Britain, to me, one of its meanings is about um, uh, clarity of thought about our interests, you know, how the world should work, you know, where we find our alliances, where we invest our effort, um, and what a country like us can do. And I think, you know, we've seen some of it already, you know, the, 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 the efforts on sanctions, uh, the 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 values diplomacy that I think people have th has come out much more strongly than I think many people thought it, it might do, um, and the clarity about some of the propositions we're we're trying to advance. But but obviously there's there's a long way to go, and events in foreign policy shape it hugely. Did did the G7 meeting not suggest that it would be easier to achieve the objectives of Global Britain if we had good relations with the European Union? If, if they were sort of less prickly? Um, so, I, I, I mean, I didn't feel that about the, the G7. I mean, mm. I was there for, for the summit. And, um, you know, um, as is known, um, Northern Ireland, to which I think you're alluding, came up in, the, in, in a, some of the bilateral conversations. But, um, you know, in general, um, it was a very purposive summit, you know, on which we... Um, you know, had to put forward and try to develop some quite ambi ambitious policy propositions that, that, you know, to a large extent found their way through into the, the conclusions. So I, I, I think G7, G, um, uh, you know, with the, with the extra guests, it sort of vindicates what we've done rather than, um, than undermining it. Do you think the, the trade and cooperation agreement is a basis for a stable long-term relationship? My colleague Catherine Barnard's put a question in, for instance, saying, well, imply, she's asking about what the strategic objectives of, of the service provisions in the TCA were, from which I'll imply, do you think things like that we might have to revisit, that there's so little, if anything at all, apart from a little carve-out from lawyers, on services uh, in that agreement? So I, I think as a general proposition, um, uh, the TCA is a stable sort of document and a stable arrangement. Um, and I don't think our first sort of recourse is to, to think about areas where it can be 
improved or developed. I mean, I think it is an incredibly broad, uh, you know, document mm-hmm. um, and covers, you know, incredibly large number of things. And I think making it work as it is should be the focus of the efforts rather than um, immediately revisiting it. I mean, obviously, as I think is known in the negotiations, we there are things we would, you know, like to have achieved that we didn't get. Uh, you know, a, a, a sort of more streamlined process on qualifications, for example, obviously we'd have liked better mode four arrangements and uh, work permits and uh, and so on. And maybe we'll have to pursue some of those in other ways. So, um, but I don't think those, you know, some of those we're, we're pursuing in different ways. Um, but I, I don't, as a general proposition, I think it, sort of it is what it is and it is incredibly sort of rich basis for collaboration and can frame lots of different kinds of positive activity. Detect a sort of bit of parental pride about the agreement there in your <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in 10 years time how would we know if Brexit had been a success or not? Um, I'm, I'm sort of hesitating as I'm trying to think of what to focus on. I think, you know, the first thing I would say is that um, we've we've settled into a more normal relationship with the, the EU um, than the one we have at the moment, um, you know, sort of more, more friendly and, and sort of normal. Um, it will be one where we have, um, you know, gone our own way in a large number of areas uh i think um and succeeded in doing so and maybe you know some of the the you know the eu will have followed us in certain areas maybe we'll have learned from the eu in some areas as well but where there's a more sort of natural um sort of learning and policy development process which isn't sort of too ideological i think is one where we are you know still a um, a major global player and uh, sort of influencing things in our own right, making things happen rather than being a sort of policy taker uh, in in foreign affairs. And I guess I would say it's one. It's a situation where you know nobody is seriously questioning Brexit. Where it's, it you know it was self evidently the right thing to do, and the country feels comfortable with it, and the world has, has moved on. And I think all those are perfectly achievable objectives. And um, I think we will get to them. But it, but in slightly more specific terms, if, you know, in five or 10 years time, a Leave voter said to you, what has Brexit done for me? Apart from, I get that, you know, one element of this is simply the fact of being able to do things of our own volition that maybe we couldn't do before. But in substantive, in terms of deliverables, God, I can't believe I used that word. Uh, what 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 can you name, if anything, that, you know, come back in five years and judge us on this? So, I, I mean, I think that is important. I would say, um, you know, some of the, um, the, the sort of political and psychological benefits of Brexit are very important to everybody. Living in a democracy where you can change your government and every policy of that government can change overnight is a very important thing. And the, the fact that that hasn't been possible for best part of 50 years is I think one of the reasons why so many people kind of felt switched off from the, the the political process and I think you know that that factor living in a democracy where everything can change and everybody can influence things is is a really important benefit I think you know if you're looking at the the economic side of it I hope we will have seen um uh, you know, more openness in the country, different patterns of trade, you know, cheaper products, wider ranges of products. And I hope we'll have seen some of the, you know, the levelling up that we're, we're trying to pursue, where the country sort of feels a bit different and um, the economic geography of the country has changed, you know, somewhat in a way that didn't seem possible uh, when we were EU members. Didn't seem possible when we were EU members or simply didn't occur to people when we were EU members? So I think, I, I mean, I feel that um, one of the, I mean, I, I think it's 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 hard to argue that um, EU membership did not reinforce the pull to the southeast, which is 
I mean, already pretty strong. It's been a feature of British economic geography for 200 years. But I think EU membership reinforced it in the process of sort of specialization in the single market, um, uh, you know, also sort of took away some some industries, which in other conditions might have, have survived. And I think, um, uh, you know, having control, having levers, having ability to sort of shape these things, not in a dirigiste directive way, because I'm very much against that, but uh, setting up um, the right sort of incentives, um, the right kind of encouragement, um, government could do a lot to, to sort of shape those things. And I think we'd, we'd sort of slightly lost the will to do some of them as an EU member, and we now have to. I think one of the most important things about Brexit is we now stand or fall on our own ability. You know, we have to take the decisions that affect the outcomes. People have to engage in those. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of on our own now, and we have to make the right decisions. And I think we will. Uh, but I think that is really important to our future as a country. Well, I hope you'll come back in a year or so's time, maybe in person, we can do this again and we can do a progress. But I mean, your final question, just out of interest, so we've, we've run out of time now, is are you enjoying politics and do you envisage staying in it for the foreseeable future? Is this what you <laughs> want to do with your life now? Um, I, I, well, I came back into government to do kind of one thing and one job, and that job has sort of expanded slightly, and the uh, the nature of it has become ministerial sport, special advisor. But that that's what I'm interested in. That's what I I came to do, and um, uh, I'm not really interested in doing anything else. And um, if I um, you know feel that um, uh, you know somebody else could do it better, I won't have any sort of difficulty in 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 moving on so i i'm in a position where i think you know i've 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 achieved as it were sort of everything i can in the political world so that's what i wanted to do and um you know i i have the sort of freedoms and um uh circumscriptions that go with that situation Brilliant. Well, listen, David, thank you so much. I know you've got an awful lot on your plate. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I hope, as I said, we can do it in person one day in the near future. But for the moment, I thought that was utterly fascinating. So thank you and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And I, I hope, as you say, um, you know, face to face soon. That'll be great. Brilliant. All the best. Take care. Thanks a lot. See you. Bye. Bye. -bye.